This year's deadly wildfires and monster storms. Terrifying signs of things to come. The annual average temperature over land has increased by 1.7 degrees Celsius since 1948. It can be really hard to think about the climate crisis when we're a full year into an entirely different and more immediate crisis. And I'm not gonna lie, when you do hear about the climate, it can be really, really hard to think positively about it. You may recall that last year, around this time, a large part of a continent was on fire. And now, one year later, Texas was frozen. So, not great. But things have been changing. Slowly at first, but now more rapidly. It might be hard to imagine this, given the state of the world, but we are making meaningful progress in the fight to hold temperature increases to a manageable number. It's happening. Is that enough? No, not yet. We have to move faster. But we do have proof that we can do it. We have concrete proof that the most dire scenarios can be prevented. And so, yes, you can. Perhaps, for the first time in a long while, look at the world's efforts on the climate crisis and feel a little bit optimistic. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Wallace-Wells is an editor-at-large for New York Magazine, and he is the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. Hello, David. Hey, how are you? Good to be here. I'm doing really well. And actually, um, despite thinking about the global climate apocalypse, I was doing better after I read your recent piece. Well, um, I think that may mean that you were starting from, like me, a, a baseline of quite bleak uh, sense of the future. And I think in the big picture, that's that's really important to keep in mind that um, even you know talking about how uh, things seem to be getting a bit better with more opportunity for more climate action um, sort of in the near future, we're still living in a world in which almost inevitably we'll be facing some quite catastrophic levels of warming down the line. And I think we should be grateful, and you know, it's what the piece was about, that um, some of the worst case scenarios are looking less and less likely, and the world is finally starting to wake up to this threat and take action at a scale, you know, commensurate with it. On the other hand, I think it's also important to keep in mind that as we've dithered the last couple of decades, um, we've basically squandered the opportunity to avoid levels of warming that our parents or grandparents would have understood as, as sort of happy outcomes and are going to be left instead, even in this sort of rapid decarbonization that we're following now, um, living in a world in which we're doing a lot of adapting to, uh, to, uh, you know, to the transformations and, and degradations um, brought about by, you know, even the warming that we're we're likely to see now, which is much less than seemed likely a few years ago. Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, I will take uh, hope where I can find it right now. But uh, <laughs> in order to keep that in mind, and maybe let's start from that place, because your latest piece started from an interesting place as well. So maybe can you illustrate um, some of the signs of the oncoming apocalypse that we might have paid more attention to last year, if not for the uh, the other apocalypse that we were dealing with? Yeah, we had a quite brutal year for climate. There were climate impacts almost everywhere around the globe, and some of them some of them were quite dramatic, even if they weren't all that ultimately consequential. 
We had a mass die-off of birds in the American Southwest with birds literally dropping from the air, um, dead of starvation uh, by the tens of thousands. We had really, really dramatic locust clouds, um, 8,000 times bigger than would be expected without climate change, growing across the Horn of Africa and spreading ultimately across the Middle East into, into India as well. These are you know, swarms of billions of locusts that descend and then chew through whole croplands, you know, eating as much food in a day as millions of people would. And we've had um, meaningful hunger problems um, across those parts of the world, in part as a result of those locust swarms, even though people in places like the US and Canada haven't, haven't really noticed them. Of course, there were the incredible fires across the American West and to some degree um, up into Canada this year, uh, much more dramatic than, than we'd ever seen in California, at least um, ever seen before in the modern history of the state. Actually, it was more than twice as bad as the next worst year, which was two years ago, which was itself dramatically worse than any other year in recorded uh, modern California history. We saw fires burning in the Amazon, um, in the Brazilian Pantanal, the wetlands there. We saw zombie fires burning all through the Arctic winter um, in Siberia. Um, one of them melted so much permafrost that uh, an entire oil uh, drilling apparatus collapsed, spilling tens of thousands of tons of oil into local rivers. Um, we saw, you know, impacts like this really everywhere we looked, you know, there was, and, and most of us were distracted for most of the year because of the pandemic and how overwhelming it was. You know, of course, climate change doesn't wait. <laughs> uh, and we're already starting to see impacts this year in 2020, and it'll continue to grow into 2021 and, and on. Um, beyond anything that our ancestors have ever seen before. We're already on a planet that's warmer than it has ever been before um, in all of the history of human civilization, which means that everything that we've ever known as a species um, is in some sense the result of climate conditions we've already left behind. And that means the world that we are living in even today at about 1.2 or 1.3 degrees Celsius of warming is already sort of a new world, like we've landed on a new planet um, and have to figure out what of the civilization we've brought with us today will endure in these new conditions and what we'll have to reform and, and refine and discard. And that's, again, just at the warming that we're seeing now. And we're inevitably going to be seeing at least a few tenths more, tenths of a degree more, and, and probably more like a half a degree or even a full degree more than what we're seeing today, which means um, those disruptions and challenges are, are only going to grow. The way you describe all this in your piece is very matter-of-fact, and it's almost optimistic. So how did you get to that place from the terrifying reality that you just explained to me? Well, I think, you know, hope and despair are ultimately a matter of perspective when it comes to climate change. And I'm deep enough in the material to have a pretty deep and, I would say, pretty grim understanding of what even an inevitable level of warming is likely to produce. So... That means that when I look out at the world, I know that the climate that we have today won't be preserved no matter what we do. Things are going to get worse. There will be considerably more warming. But off of that baseline, where we go from here is a matter of, you know, it's a question for human action and human response. It's, you know, what kinds of decarbonization measures do we take? What kinds of negative emissions can we build out? What can we do from here? How quickly can we respond and how dramatically can we respond? And a few years ago, those futures looked really, really bleak too, that we hadn't really made much progress on any of the most important metrics. We were not um, decarbonizing any sector of our economies very efficiently or very rapidly. Almost nowhere in the world were governments taking um, the problem of climate change 
as seriously as the scientists of the world said they needed to. And so it was very hard to look out at the future and say things were going to get better. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. So what's changed in the past few years? Well, it's a complicated story. Um, there are a lot of drivers. Um, but I think in the big picture, it's important just to keep in mind the result, which is that um, it now looks like we're on track for somewhere between two and a half and three and a half degrees Celsius of warming. Whereas just a few years ago, the conventional wisdom among scientists was that we we're on track for between four and five degrees of warming. So we've cut out of our baseline at least one degree of warming, which doesn't sound like much, but trust me, it, it sort of encloses an entirely different universe of suffering. So we're, you know, our, 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 our floor for how much we're going to get is quite high and is going to include a lot of suffering, but we've lowered our ceiling considerably too, which means almost certainly we're not going to be dealing with scenarios that seemed a few years ago, um, you know, to be our sort of business as usual future. In fact, we're, we're going we're gonna to almost certainly avoid them. And that's really good news. What changed to produce that, as I say, it's, it's complicated. Part of it is market dynamics. Renewable energy is much, much cheaper than even its biggest boosters would have predicted a few years ago. And that means as a result that policymakers and investors who are talking about long-term, um, you know, transforming the energy systems or, or invest, making long-term investments in the energy systems of their communities or their countries face a very different calculus than they faced a few years ago. It now seems too good a deal to pass up um, renewable energy. It, there's, there's really no economic logic at all for investing in fossil fuel infrastructure going forward. And um, we're starting to see those decisions being made in those ways, that many more investments are going, being directed towards green futures. Um, it's also the case that there's been this global political awakening led by the climate strikers, but not exclusive to them, and has been sort of abetted by the arrival of um, some much more intense natural disasters in the, in the global north, such that, you know, really we're starting to see climate change arrive as a first order political priority for voters across countries like Canada and the US and throughout Europe in a way that it simply wasn't the case a few years ago. Um, and I think we're also starting to see a lot of movement in the corporate sector, in part because of that cultural change and that social change where no company wants to be seen as a handmaiden to climate apocalypse. And in fact, they all want to brand themselves and market themselves as playing a positive, helpful role. And as a result, many of them are taking, um, you know, steps, there's steps that I'm skeptical of. I don't think we should take them totally for, you know, at face value, but there's a sort of a, um, a global turning the page on climate denial. We're no longer seeing any corporate entity or really any politician anywhere in the world in any power with the possible exception of Jair Bolsonaro and, and, uh, in Brazil and Scott Morrison in Australia, who are really trafficking in the kinds of climate denial that we saw quite dominant um, really throughout the world up until just a, a few years ago. And so for all of these reasons, I think we're in a kind of a new era. Um, and then the last dynamic I would say is really unique to the pandemic experience, which is that many of these governments um, all around the West in particular, but really all around the world, have become much more comfortable with much more um, generous spending 
than they were even just a few years ago. So almost every country um, is spending money much more aggressively than they spent in the aftermath of the Great Recession to try to shore up the livelihoods and lives of their citizens. And once you start spending money at that kind of scale, much, much more of it than really anyone thought was workable, um, even just a decade ago, you start to wonder, where should we be putting this money? What, what should we be investing it in? And what, what can we do with it to make sure that the future is most comfortable, most prosperous, most just for, um, for the future generations of this country and this, and this world? And um, I think that that has already started to pay dividends on climate action with more um, climate spending going forward. But it's going to, you know, that'll accumulate even more. And then over the next year, as governments start, you know, they continue to spend at this level but in a more targeted um, investor, in, you know, kind of inv long-term investment-minded way, which will lead them, I think, inevitably, given the changing dynamics of um, climate economics, um, to make dramatic investments in decarbonization and indeed, to some degree, um, in resilience and adaptation as well. See, that is super complicated, but there are a few things that really stick out to me from that that I, I, I want to ask you about uh, a little deeper. And the first one's pretty simple. You mentioned the climate strikers. And, you know, that was a movement that began uh, at a very small level and and grew. And, you know, when or, or what was it um, that kind of pushed that into the mainstream position? Uh, you know, are we going to look back and and really focus on Greta Thunberg as, as somebody who changed, who, who turned the tide? I think it's undeniable that she single-handedly changed the course of history, although I would also say that there are many others like her leading climate strikes in much less yes. hospitable environments. You know, one of the things about, um, you know, Sweden is, a, is an outwardly progressive place, um, climate-minded, and so the community that first received her and saw her and sort of elevated her into a, a kind of a climate icon um, was one that was already, you know, quite receptive to that um, to that sort of messaging. When you look at um, people who are leading climate strikes in other parts of the world, um, the, they're facing a, a much more of an uphill battle. And that's one reason why I find that movement so inspiring. You know, people like you and me a few years ago might have looked at the climate crisis and thought, well, this is quite overwhelming. And, and what can we do? We're, we're just one person. Uh, this whole system is, is driving us towards um, some real ecological damage and a really dark future. But, but what can I do as one individual in that system? And when I look at the experience of the climate strikers, I'm really moved at how they completely dismissed that same set of challenges and feeling of being overwhelmed. You know, these are many of them, almost all of them are under the age of 18. They're, they're not voting wherever they're from. Many of them are, you know, from marginalized communities of one kind or another, many of them queer. Um, these are people who are like, if you had to depict, you know, the least empowered people in the world, um, many of them would, would look like a lot of the climate strikers. And so they were, you know, they, to the extent that you and I might be intimidated by how little power we had, these were people looking at this, you know, with seeing the same problem multiplied many, many, many times over. And they didn't give in. They said, we are going to use what tools we have and what power we have, our voices, and we're going to make ourselves heard and make a room for our, ourselves at the table and make a room for our worldview in the you know deliberations and um, debates at the highest levels of geopolitics, and you know miraculously through the force of their masses, they have. 
I think Greta is, you know, an unbelievable hero in that respect. But I, I think that it, the, the move, as she would say, she would be the first to say, the movement is much, much bigger than her and is ultimately an inevitable response to people just watching the news and seeing um, many more natural disasters with the inevitable fingerprint of climate change in them, affecting people living close to them, people living elsewhere in their own countries, and people living all around the world. I think it's impossible to keep your eyes open these days and not notice uh, the changes to the planet's climate. And if you are a kind of a moral political thinker, um, that leads you to this kind of action. And I think that, you know, it's, it's amazing to consider that Greta first started striking in the summer of 2018. That really was not very long time ago. Um, and in that, in that, you know, whatever that is, two, two and a half years, um, the entire shape of climate politics all around the world has been upended. Now, as I said, it, it has also, also to do with market dynamics and has to do with corporate positions, et cetera. Like it's not, it's not just a matter of climate striking. Right. That's actually what I want to ask you about next. It plays right into that, which is um, corporations right now uh, have really kind of picked up the baton. And to your point, uh, whether their action is severe enough or not, uh, they don't want to be seen as climate villains. They want to be seen as climate heroes. Um, so they're doing things like, you know, uh, buying carbon credits and all of that stuff. And I guess my question when I see this action, uh, which is great, I mean, and it's good that they're doing it. Will there come a point at which that low-hanging fruit has been picked and, you know, corporations and governments will have to sort of start on the stuff that is not as, as economically painless? Well, of course. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is a challenge of a world historical scale. Um, to decarbonize the world um, at a pace that would allow us to safely avoid what is called a catastrophic level of warming two degrees Celsius, which is, you know, the stated goal of the Paris Accords, um, would require a unprecedented, almost unimaginable um, disruption of the way that every aspect of the world is conducted today. So, you know, to give us a, um, it, to bring us in range of, of 1.5 degrees of Celsius, which is sort of the preferred goal of climate activists and um, would give us a much better chance of avoiding some of these really, truly, truly scary out outcomes. That would require us to entirely eliminate carbon from everything we do in the world by about 2035. Um, and that is assuming a pretty rapid, um, you know, we start today and, and, and we start declining. Um, if we keep our emissions stable at today's levels, we will entirely exhaust the budget for that 1.5 degree target in just seven years. Um, that means that, you know, well before 2030, we may have entirely um, lost the opportunity to avoid some truly, truly scary climate outcomes. And in fact, a number of scientists think that, you know, there's some debate about exactly how, what the scale of what that's, what's called the carbon budget, exactly what that is. And, and there are certainly some scientists who, who think we've already exhausted the carbon budget for 1.5, for a 1.5 degree target. So, you know, in order to take action that will secure a kind of comfortable, stable, livable future for ourselves, um, will require already today does require um, really quite dramatic action well beyond anything that any governments of the world or any corporations of the world are promising. Um, but 
you know, and, and there's a way to be quite distressed and discouraged about that. And that's perfectly reasonable. You know, the world is um, careening towards an almost inevitable future that will look quite, quite bleak. Um, on the other hand, the fact that we have taken some of the truly worst case scenarios off the table, you know, four or five degrees and warmer than that, where we'd be talking about, you know, more than twice as much war as we have today, and maybe a permanent 30% drop in, in global GDP, um, you know, parts of the planet being hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. Um, those scenarios now seem vanishingly unlikely. And I think, you know, in the climate business, you kind of got to take progress uh, where you find it. And to me, the fact that we have we have already um, made investments and, and, and refocused our energy future sufficiently to avoid those um, outcomes is quite good news. But as you say, it still leaves us very far short of any target that anyone looking rationally at the science would tell you was was a safe landing. And as a result, I think we need much, much more still to be done, much, much more to be done. On that point, though, I do think it's important, it's important to keep in mind that one of the great contributions of rapid movement is that it makes future rapid movement uh, easier to imagine as well. You know, a few years ago, we would have said, yeah, today, what, what we're seeing today, two or three years ago, seemed to me to be impossible to imagine or believe. Now, it's, it's still insufficient, but it's, it was, it's well beyond what I thought was likely to happen just a few years ago. Um, that means, among other things, that it's quite possible that what we'll see two or three years from now, or certainly five or 10 or 20 years from now, um, will go beyond what we see, what, what seems possible today. And that kind of momentum is exactly what we need. I still think, even with it, we're unlikely to, you know, to get close to 1.5 degrees of warming. I think something like two degrees is a best case scenario. But I think that we're likely to see um, a quite rapid acceleration of, of all of these um, processes of decarbonization. And, um, you know, ultimately, that's, that's good news, even if it's, it's not quite as good news as I would hope for. Here's my last question for you. We talked to um, a lot of climate scientists and a lot of folks who cover and, and write on this topic. And often it can feel hopeless. And I think one of the things that resonated uh, about your piece was the opposite. How do you feel now um, compared to how you might have felt uh, a couple of years ago, as you mentioned, when, when it looked like, you know, the worst case scenarios were right there? Well, I would I, personally, I'm I'm feeling more optimistic, um, but I think it's also important for us all to understand that this is not a binary system. We've already lost the opportunity to avoid dramatic warming. We are going to be living with it and going to be adapting to it. And so, when we talk about being optimistic or about progress being made, we're not talking about you know seeing a path out of the problem. It's just that I'm now seeing real changes in how seriously climate is being taken by the people with the power to do something about it. And as a result, I think we're giving ourselves a chance to be forced to only adapt to a smaller level of disruptive warming rather than a you know truly apoc apocalyptic level. And I think you know we fall into a trap in our political thinking on many issues by you know when we think of them in terms of in binary terms in terms of winning or losing or in terms of you know on, on climate whether we're going to totally beat climate change or whether it's going to totally destroy us. You know, we're already in that ugly muddle in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to get uglier to some degree. It seems as though we're on a path now to ensure that the future can still be 
relatively comfortable and relatively prosperous and relatively just by the standards that we hold today, even if that requires responding and protecting ourselves against some of these impacts, um, it doesn't look at the moment like that future will be the overwhelming one that seemed likely a few years ago. And so coming from where I'm coming from, you know, I'm, I'm a climate alarmist. I've written a, a book that sketches out some, some really scary scenarios. I'm very happy and reassured to think that the world is going to be slightly less hot than I thought it would, you know, a year or two ago. But I also think at a, at a sort of fundamental moral level, we have to be serious and recognize and understand that already we've made inevitable levels of warming and disruption that previous generations would have found horrifying. And we would find horrifying too if we hadn't, you know, along the way normalized ourselves to that amount of suffering and impact. And I think as a result, going forward, we need to be just as worried about how to aid those hit most punishingly um, by the impacts of climate change, many of them in the global south and around the equatorial band of the planet, as concerned about that as we do about how to decarbonize our energy and electricity systems as rapidly as we can. These are sort of two twin moral imperatives that we have to be serious about at the same time, rather than thinking that we can avoid the need for one um, with the other, which has, I think, been a problem for too long. I hope we can keep our eyes on that ball. Thank you so much, David, for explaining this to us today. Thanks for having me. David Wallace-Wells, editor-at-large for New York Magazine and author of The Uninhabitable Earth. That was The Big Story. If you would like more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. While you are there, please take our audience survey. We need to hear from you. We've heard from a ton of you. We are learning a lot. We learned, for instance, that you like positive episodes on a Friday, so we gave you this one. I hope you feel great going into the weekend. You can tell us what you'd like to learn more about, what you don't want to hear about, anything, really. We'll take all the feedback we can get. It is at our website, again, thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you want to complain to me in person on Twitter, if that's a thing, we're at thebigstoryfpn. We are also available via email the Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Steph Phillips, Claire Broussard, and Ryan Clark are the producers of The Big Story. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend. We'll talk Monday.